Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Boyle, and this week on the show, I have a very special guest, Kimba Molden. Now, Kimba integrates somatic parts work, attachment coaching, and NARM principles for addressing complex developmental trauma and applied neurology into her private nutrition work. She helps to offer women a well-rounded and deep set of tools for addressing their long-term self-healing needs. She has a curiosity about the relationship between nutrition and somatic healing and has been stoked by the inclusion of the effects of the nervous system dysregulation and trauma within this nutritional approach. So today in our interview, we dive into what neurosomatic is and how you can apply it to nutrition and your health. We dive into the difference between men and women our nervous system, and how to regulate it. So a really fascinating conversation with Kimba. Let's tune in and have a listen. Hi, I'm Kate Boyle, and welcome to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you health information from diet and lifestyle to movement and nutrition. My aim is to bring you bite-sized pieces of information that you can instigate into your everyday life to change your health. Hi, Kimba. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. Hello. Yes, I'm super grateful to be here. Now, today we're going to be diving into all things nutrition, and I know you specialize in neurosomatic nutrition, but before we get into that, can you share with listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I am a nutrition consultant and a health coach. Um, I have a background in health science and was originally going to be a dietitian, but then I decided that it wasn't a holistic enough of a route for me. So I went to a private nutrition school and then from there, I've just done lots of independent trainings. I practice nutrition under an umbrella term we often call or use pro-metabolic or bioenergetic, which basically just means like we're looking first and foremost at energy production at the level of the cell and how that influences the entire metabolism um, and how as a result of that, we get health issues and how we can best use nutrition to increase the metabolism, increase energy production within the cell and like address uh, energy deficits as a result of things like stress. I work specifically with women. And in the last year, I've moved my practice more towards somatic coaching and looking at taking a trauma and trauma informed approach to nutrition. So went through several trainings for working with complex trauma, um, looking at, like you said, neurosomatics, which is like something that I'm actually, I, mean, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert at neurosomatic uh, nutrition. I would say that I'm moving into uh, applying nutrition through a neurosomatic lens, which I can go into what that means as well. For sure. Let's dive into that right now, because I think it's one of those terms people, I think, you know, have started hearing it, but they maybe don't know exactly what it means. And you mean by that, you mean somatic? Yeah, just that they've heard of the neurosomatic, but they don't really know how they're applying it to you yeah. know, life in general. Yeah. And I think the term neurosomatic isn't actually used very often. They're usually used separately. Um, and so somatics basically, somatic means body. So it basically means like working with the body. And I think a lot of people, whether you're a doctor or a therapist or a nutritionist, dietitian, um, you're doing, you're usually practicing what we call top down work, which is, which means that you're using cognitive faculties, upper corticoid functions to help people understand, learn and change their health, the behaviors, their ideas through the brain, like through the mind. When you're using somatics, you're actually going through the body to influence the brain. So you're using, you're going straight towards nervous system functions. And you can do this with things like breath work, um, different embodiment practices, guided practices to kind of get down into your body. There's lots of different somatic modalities out there. So there's a lot of different somatics that you could look into or you could like hire people to help you with. Um, the one I've trained, I've trained in a few different ones, but the one that uh, I'm integrating the most into my practice is called neurosomatic intelligence and that is using applied neurology for the sake of nervous system regulation trauma resolution and addressing health issues and i wanted to actually like share the um 
the specific definition from the program because I just went through a neuro, uh, neurosomatic intelligence coaching program, uh, which I highly recommend to anyone who's interested looking into that program. Uh, so it's the ability to recognize how sensory and cognitive impacts are affecting the nervous system and to be able to intentionally change impacts to produce positive adaptation in the nervous system, which then allows for increased regulation, for performance, behavior change, and trauma repatterning. Mm. So it's, yeah, so it's understanding how much we can actually work with and change ourselves. It's pretty fascinating and it makes sense from, even if you apply it to a nutrition point of view, because I was thinking about it before our interview, you know, a lot of people that may struggle with, you know, overeating and stuff, there's usually some type of trigger, we'll say, or they're usually getting into some type of emotional state that's obviously not going to be like, you know, parasympathetics, not rest, they're not rested and calm. There's usually something that's triggering them, which would push them into that, um, you know, sympathetic state and that nervous system, that fight or flight. So thinking of it from sort of just that sort of basic point of view, it makes total sense. But, you know, I know from my nutrition schooling going to just through the university level and stuff, it's not something we ever, you know, I went through 20 years ago, but it's not something we ever applied. You know, we were all about, population nutrition and you know looking at general overall nutrition but not really applying it to individual bodies yeah definitely I mean there's I think there's a big um there's a big I don't know what the word is like a, a lot of what we apply and we use is general information I would say like the vast majority of information people take online even what their doctors are necessarily giving them is like general information um and I think that yeah you can you can get some value from general information for sure. But I do think that general information applied to the individual can also be very harmful, especially when you're taking the nervous system patterns of someone into account. It's everyone has a different, it's like a fingerprint. Everyone has a different nervous system set of patterns and that ties deeply in with their metabolism, their physiology. So you mm. take that into account as well. Well, that's just for general health, isn't it, though, really? Like, you know, even everything I teach, I say to my clients, it needs to be individualized because you're different to your friend or you're different to that person you're watching on social media. But I think a lot of people just want a general quick fix that they can just apply to themselves because it's easier and sometimes they may not know that they need to individualize it. Of course. Now, you work with women specifically. How does your work with women or or why have you chosen to work with women? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first obvious one is just that I'm a woman. Um, And so uh, when I started my business, like early on, I just noticed I was marketing to everyone, as so many of us business owners do when we first start out. Um, and I noticed that regardless of what I was writing or who I was marketing to, I was still getting mainly women that were interested in my services. Um, part of that, obviously, is just because women tend to be more proactive with their health and they tend to hire nutritionists more often. But also it was because they wanted a, the female experience, someone that understands the female experience. So initially, it was a little bit more practical. It was just like, how can I better run my business by targeting my content and marketing and whatever to, you know, a smaller audience. Um, but as I started to look more towards women's health, I just got, it was like, I opened Pandora's box and I just realized like how much women's health is sorely underrepresented in this culture and how much different women are from men. And so like, so this passion was kind of born out of that. And I think, yes, we do have overlap and there are some things that we all share but i think that women yeah i think women's health is i mean women have a lot more chronic illness than men it's, and and there's a reason for that and i think that we're failing women the medical system is failing everyone to certain you know when it comes to chronic illness um but i think it's failing women at a much higher rate because we are not being catered to specifically as a different sex from men like a lot of the data is based on you know male-centric research um, and then also women just, and this is like, you know, part of a larger conversation, but women, in order to get to where we have as a sex, socially, culturally, we've had to make a lot of sacrifices and in many ways behave more like men. 
And so there are trade-offs for that. And you're seeing that in these like high rates of chronic illness amongst women um, as a result of stress. Mm. So that's something that I started to like see more. Well, I totally agree because that's kind of why I (laughs) as well specialize for my podcast into women's health because I feel like there's so much general health information out there. But when it comes to you know, women's hormones or women's reproductive systems or, you know, women have to go through so many changes in our lives. And there's not, as you said, so many of the studies just exclude women because, you know, because of our cycles, because it's too hard to, you know, try to counter that in. So, so much of the research is on men, um, which is why I had a passion to try to help women, you know, a little bit similar. So hopefully more of this information gets out there to them. So when it comes to our nervous system, how does it tie in with our nutritional healing? Yeah. Oh, man. There's like so many different ways that our nervous system is our operating system. So it regulates all of our stress responses, the way that our body responds to stress, the way that it manages energy, the way that it allocates resources. So every time we have a stress response, our physiology response response to that you know like we use up glucose we use up nutrients our oxidation rate changes um and as a result of that the way that our body uses our fuel produces energy is going to shift so uh, if you have everyone has a nervous system which is you know encompasses a lot and everyone has patterns you know based on their childhood any trauma they might have just life experiences environment they're raised in um, even like hardware they're born with. And so our patterns are going to reflect how our body uses everything, including nutrients. Um, and so if we are someone who is chronically dysregulated, like we have a lot of nervous system dysregulation, so we tend to be upregulated too much of the time. So we get into fight or flight too much of the time. Maybe our baseline is a little bit too stressed out. Like even when we come back down from a stressful situation, we might still be upregulated too much. Um, or we could be downregulated chronically because we, you know, burn through our resources and now our body is in more of a protective state. And so we are uh, you know, cycling through states of like immobility, of disassociation, of freeze, um, collapse. So as a result of this, this will dictate how the body uses nutrients, how it uses glucose. Um, pretty much all the chemicals that we rely on to help us function and perform will be affected and or disrupted by these nervous system states. Well, it makes sense when you like have a really busy, stressful day and then, you know, I don't know about other people, but I know like at the end of the day, you can feel a bit depleted because you've had those, you know, adrenaline dumps and you've probably burned through your glucose quicker. And then sometimes you might even feel more wanting to reach for something sugary to pep you back up with energy. So I'm pretty sure, you know, other people can definitely relate to feeling that, but maybe have never made the connection. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a lot of, it helps you understand a lot of behavior patterns around food and um, like remove the shame from them once you start to understand like the underlying physiology that's or the underlying neuropsychophysiology like physiology that's driving those behaviors and so one of the biggest ones that I struggled with for years and that many of my clients do is binging mm-hmm. so just like overeating sugar especially like at night um overeating in general you know I'll get like a lot of women that I cons- that I consult with that are label themselves sugar addicts or food addicts and Oftentimes what that does is it sets up this cycle of like restriction because you feel like, oh, I, I overeat. So then I have to restrict. I have to, you know, be more controlling with myself because I'm overeating and this is not healthy. Um, so once you understand that it's actually a stress response, there's a reason you're overeating like high calorie, high carb foods. It's because your body is responding to stress and therefore you are trying to bring, you're trying to regulate yourself. Like you're trying to bring yourself back down to a baseline by getting enough glucose to your brain so that it can get out of a survival state. Mm. And I think a lot, a lot of women live in survival states so much of the time that they don't recognize that's what's going on. But like that's why you're grabbing the certain foods you're grabbing and you're eating, eating them in a certain way and potentially overconsuming them is because you're trying to get out of a survival state. Mm. So people listening in that are like, yep, you're pretty much describing me. How are they? going to start to get out of that yeah um 
I think one would be to uh, look, you know, look at your nervous system patterns, like start to learn about what that means and how that ties in. So basically like your stress patterns, your body's ability to regulate itself and how that ties in with basic physiological stuff like blood sugar stability. Um, because a lot of women, again, because stress is this physiological thing that requires we use up more of our nutrients, especially glucose. Every time we're stressed, our body uses up more glucose. So if you're someone who has that going on year after year, then you're going to end up with chronic patterns of low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. And as a result of that, you'll often have, that will become like a nervous system pattern in of itself. It's like dropping, blood sugar dropping, the body using cortisol, like stress hormones to bring blood sugar back up. And then you have a stress hormone high. Um, and then you, you know, oftentimes have a lowered appetite as a result of that. And then you, you know, it just becomes this cycle. And so looking at how often you eat, what are you eating? Are you eating, you know, um, are you eating balanced meals and snacks? So you're keeping your blood sugar stable and like prioritizing that. And then what are, what is your stress patterns look like? Mm. And so starting to look more closely at your stress patterns. And I know I've worked with a few women before that are almost, I don't know if addicted is the right word, but they get so used to that pattern that if you take that pattern away, they almost get a bit lost because they they almost, you know, they like that adrenaline dump. They like, you know, that sort of feeling. So I think sometimes retraining from that can be hard for some women. Oh, definitely. For sure. Yeah. And, and in neurosomatics, we talk a lot about, because um, the brain's number one job is to keep us alive. It's survival. And it does this through like humans, even though we are fairly complex, we're also kind of simple and predictable at the same time. Like we work in loops. So we take in inputs, which is like cognitive and sensory inputs, as you know, the definition of neurosomatic describes. We interpret those by the brain, and then that will give us either performance outputs or protective outputs, depending on how the, the inputs are interpreted. So because the brain interprets based on prediction, it's important, it's important to the brain to have stability. So if you have a state that you're used to being in, even if it's a stress out state, even if it's a dysregulated state, it will be threatening to the brain to change that, right? So we do actually get habituated and reliant upon dysregulated stressed out states because it's easier for the brain to predict what's going to happen next if we just stay in one state or we go back to one state over and over again. Mm -hmm. So in neurosomatics, we have something called medium effective dose, which is like where even positive states that we're trying to move ourselves into or like, you know, positive um, changes, habits, we move into those slowly because mm. we want to take into account the fact that the brain is going to resist. Change is always going to be resistant to the brain. Well, I think that's probably good for listeners to heal too because so many times people are trying to make changes and they fall back into old patterns and then they beat themselves up and then they think, oh, well, this is just too hard. I've got to give up, you know, try something else. But if they know that that's the normal pattern that's, you know, will happen, then that can be a bit more comforting when they try to make change too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just like understanding that, um, you know, change is not black and white. It's not all or nothing. It's, it really does happen through little steps that they'll add up over time. And so like, that's how behavior change happens. It's not, again, it's not just like this. I see this a lot in my coaching work. It's like, either I need to make gourmet meals, plan them all out in advance, have all of that, you know, set up each week, or I just can't do it. Like, I just can't change my, and I tell them like, you know, I tell my clients, like lower the bar to entry, like just get the, get the ingredients for like, nutrient dense macro like macros in so you just have the macros in throw stuff together it doesn't have to be a gourmet meal it can just be like you know rice and vegetables to meat. like it can really be that simple yeah going back to basics sometimes <laughs> yeah and just again keeping it as simple as possible because you're going to have resistance from the brain that shows up in beliefs ideas emotions energy what we call protective outlets and the bigger the change we want to make, the bigger the threat response from the brain, especially if it's like a, based on identity. I would say that's probably like where some of the biggest threats can come from is like we have an identity that we build around certain health states, certain energy states. So we take yeah. those things away and then the brain doesn't know who we are. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that can be, um, you know, quite confronting for some people because they don't even realize that they've 
you know, really associated themselves with that until it's taken away and then they realize the impact of it. Oh, yeah. I think I think nervous system work is the most confronting work. But so it can be hard. And I think a lot of people avoid it um, because of that. I think it's easier to do top down work where you can kind of stay in your head and like rely on the things that you, you know, the thoughts that you know, the stories that you know, taking in more information. Once you start to want to change those patterns, those nervous system patterns, stress patterns, um, you have to start looking at yourself a little bit. And that can be, you know, that can be a difficult experience mm. for a lot of us. Well, and also I think too, in this day and age, we've got so much information coming at us all the time, whether or not it's from internet or social media or the news or whatever, all your friends that you think you're almost doing really well by taking, you know, like I'm taking all this information in. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting ahead or I'm learning, I'm expanding and growing, but if you're not actually applying it and then tuning into your body and and using that information, then it's really not changing a whole lot. Yeah, totally. I just made an Instagram post about this today. I think that we do that a lot in this culture. We conflate information gathering with healing work and change. And, um, you know, it gives us pleasure. We're we're like information foragers as a species. And so it can give us pleasure and purpose and make us feel like we're doing something. It's useful. I mean, information is important, but um, I do think we have so much of it. Like a lack of information isn't really the problem for most people. I think a lack of embodiment and like felt sense, felt presence is a much bigger issue. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause I know that I can sometimes fall into that trap and be like, oh, this is amazing information or want to sign up for this course and want to learn, you know, something else new, but you can get so much more out of just going back through the information that you've already got and then applying it to your business or your life or your health or whatever it may be. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I have the, I fall in the same trap. I think it's, it's a much larger issue than just the individual. Yeah. A hundred percent. Hi, everyone. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that Paleo Valley is having its biggest sale of the year for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. From the 24th of November until December 1st at midnight, you can get 35% off your purchase as well as choose a free mystery gift valued at between $25 and $60. Now, this is their biggest sale of the year. And as you all know, I love the Paleo Valley products. I myself take their vitamin C, their turmeric, their organ complex, and it really supports my health. To check out their amazing sale, head on over to the podcast show notes and click the link to grab your discount. And when it comes to trauma, what classifies as trauma? Mm. Um, that's also actually another, there's so many different definitions I could give you, but I'm going to give you one from my neurosomatic program specifically, because I think it's super useful. Um, so a protective response that occurs in the body and the nervous system in response to a perceived threat. It doesn't even have to be a real threat. It's just a perception from the brain. It can be real. It may not be real. Um, real in the sense that it's actually going to harm us. It's not just the event that causes a long-term dysregulation of the nervous system. It's the reaction inside the body that occurs repeatedly um, from an event or a series of events over time. And so it's not just the emotional response, but it's the physiological nervous system response to a highly stressful event or chronic, chronic stressful events. Um, so the, I think the difference between that and just stress is that we all like stress is, is ubiquitous. We're not going to get rid of it. Like just being alive, stress is basically like a demand place on the body. But I think with trauma, there's also different kinds of trauma, right? There's complex developmental trauma, attachment trauma, and there's like more PTSD, like shock trauma. Um, I tend to focus on, in my work, complex trauma, developmental trauma. That's, I, I would say that's probably more common. Uh, but both of them, you want to look at the stored energy in the body and the dysregulate the, the patterns of dysregulation that have come as a result of those experiences. Whereas stress is usually just the demands placed in the body, which we may or may not have the resources to deal with. Trauma comes from something that's it's greater, the demand is greater than what the body has resources for. And so it creates a nervous system response that we then take into our lives moving forward. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And 
with trauma and the people that you've worked with, do you find that most people need help to process that trauma or are they able to just, you know, grab tools and and help themselves essentially? I would say that like, I would say we need help. And I say that in general, like I think healing requires support. Like we don't function in isolation. We're not an isolated nervous system. We're actually a part of a network of nervous systems. And then we have like a lot of data to indicate that people don't heal as well or grow as age as well if they're isolated. So some kind of support. Um, and I also do believe having gone through the trainings that I've gone through and just like having chronic uh, complex trauma myself, like I would say understanding it and working with someone that understands it can be incredibly helpful. And if you're not doing that, there is a chance that you might not really um, process it in the way that in a healthful way where your body can actually digest it and you know, assimilate it and expel it. It could be something that where you open yourself up to it and then don't have the resources, the capacity to regulate through it, if that makes sense. Like even within the world of again, there's like so many different directions you could go in with somatic, somatic support, somatic trauma support. Um, one thing that I really love about neurosomatic intelligence practice is that it actually gives you like legit tools for addressing your nervous system, your neural deficits helps you understand the neuroscience of it. Um, as opposed to just like, you know, I've had several clients that went to a somatic therapist to work on their trauma patterns that they realized they had. And then they just were basically like, they just opened them up and then didn't really have tools to manage what they opened themselves up to. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Which is yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, and I think like, um, being in your body, like if, you, if you're not embodied, if you're disembodied to various degrees or you're, you know, you're disassociated from your body, there's a reason for that. Like you didn't end up that way just because you accidentally, you know, ended up disembodied or disassociated. So respecting that, like respecting that you have, you've developed these trauma patterns and this dysregulation for a reason and like honoring your body's needs to move slowly and that process is really important because you can't overwhelm your system. And then, you know, you can even end up with a lot of feelings and, you know, feelings and stored memories and things that you don't really know what to do with. You need to have support in place to guide you or in hold, you know, help build that container. Yeah. Well, even uh, I'm a Pilates instructor as well. So, but I work, you know, individually with clients and stuff too and I would say majority of clients that come in because they are are experiencing some type of pain there is some type of disembodiment you know or disassociation that's happening because of some pattern you know that's formed that could be years ago and it could be from separate trauma you know from the pain they're experiencing but you know it can be one of those places too when they're starting to move and they're starting to connect to their body and then they will start crying. And it's because, you know, for the first time they're like, oh, I can actually feel, you know, um, how my body is, is, you know, feeling. I can feel this muscle switching on or they've just finally created a little bit of space where they're not thinking about a thousand things that everything just kind of, you know, the gates sort of open up and and uh, the tears start coming or the emotions start coming out. So I think it's one of those areas you need to be really careful with. Um, and if you have a safe space, then, you know, the client you're working with tends to, you know, have some more of those advancements or breakthroughs too yeah for sure yeah the safe space is really important i don't think um because we live in a top-down culture and i think it's safer for a lot of us to stay in our cognition and like stay in our minds and so a lot of us don't realize how much we do that by default to protect ourselves Mm. and how much they're storing in their body without realizing it too 100%. Yeah. And that's something like, as I've moved more, because I'm like, I'm deeply intellectual and I can spend a lot of time in my head thinking and sharing ideas. And I tend to talk really fast when I'm, you know, passionate about something. So dropping in has been a long, like, uh, been doing this for over a decade of just like dropping in and doing somatic work. But it wasn't until I started working with clients and dropping down myself and then slowing them down and dropping them down that I realized how much more of a vulnerable, intimate, like it requires a lot of attunement trust to hold that space for someone to leave the safety of their mind 
and actually just like feel. Mm. And from the practitioner point of side, I will say too, it can be quite draining energy wise and emotional wise sometimes creating that space and you know because when I'm working with a client and I'm working one-on-one and we're working on body issues and things and you know then emotions and stuff can start flowing you need to be present like 110% for that person because they are sharing that vulnerable stuff and like we were sort of saying before you know your nervous system you know is is you know alighted and and tuned in and all the rest of it that you can still have that sort of slump afterwards and feel a bit depleted as a practitioner on the practitioner side yeah definitely I mean it requires it definitely requires a lot more of you for sure and it will it will push you to see the ways that you're not present with yourself that you're dysregulated yourself um when you do that kind of work because you you know you come up against your own limitations when you're showing up for other people Mm. uh the the practice that I the training that I did for complex trauma is called NARM, which stands for neuroaffective relational model. Uh, like whereas you've probably heard of somatic experiencing, I'm yeah. assuming that's pretty popular. Yeah. So that's that was designed predominantly that was designed to address shock trauma. It's like a car accident, uh, you know, something that's like an event focused trauma, um, which is not the same experience as complex trauma. Complex trauma is a different, I don't know if you know the difference or you have any interest in um, having me describe the difference or but so NARM is is designed for developing for sorry is designed for addressing complex developmental trauma Um, and one of the principles of NARM is what they call 50 50 which is aiming to keep and no one's going to be perfectly 50 50 but but aiming to keep 50 percent of your focus internal and 50 percent external and the reason this is for practitioners that I've you know, apply this to clients and they also use this a lot with themselves. Um, the reason for this is because most of us, especially if you're someone with complex trauma, often has a difficult time with boundaries, doesn't really understand what's theirs, what's someone else's, and can disassociate or, you know, get sucked into someone else's experience, give too much to someone else's experience and lose track of their own experience. Or the opposite would be hyperfixate on your own internal experience to where your interoceptive experience is, which is like sensations, all the stuff that happens inside of us sends messages to the brain that you're not safe. So you could be controlling all of your external outputs, your environment, all that, and you're still feeling incredibly unsafe because so much of your focus is is going inside, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it's com- very fast. I think it's fascinating, really, <laughs> delving into it more. Yeah. I know definitely when I was younger, I definitely gave too much and depleted myself much more easily as I've gotten older and obviously had more experience. And then I think had a family and had to become more aware of protecting my energy on my side. Uh, I've definitely changed the way I work and I'm more aware of it, but it did take me quite a while to sort of process through that as a practitioner, uh, which I think, you know, comes with experience, but that's my type of personality that if I, you know, similar to you, that if I'm passionate about something then I want to, you know, give everything that I've got. And when I was younger, I wasn't aware that I was really giving way too much and then completely depleting myself. Yeah. And also just like, I think that there's this, um, there's a perception in this culture that the practitioner is like in a separate space than you like the practitioners on a pedestal or they they're in authority and often we take that on as practitioners and we think oh i need to give them 100 of myself focus 100 of myself on them but it's actually from the nar perspective there's different you know obviously there's different um beliefs and approaches to this that especially when you're working with trauma, because it's there's so much there that you're unpacking with someone and you're holding space for, it is important to consistently check in with yourself. Like, how am I feeling in response to this client's situation and what they're sharing and what they're bringing up? And like, am I leaning in too much? Like, am I losing myself in this client's experience? Do I take the, take it with me after the session? So that just that the, the, the perspective of like keeping track of yourself and understanding that even though, yes, you are a facilitator of healing for this person and you're here to support them and serve them. You're also, you're, you're still having an experience. Like you're still here full force internally feeling perceiving, you know, so giving yourself space for that too 
can make for a more rich, uh, more like collaborative experience with the client as opposed to like, again, like I'm an authority and I'm here to like give you healing and you're here to receive it or whatever. It's more of like you're you're here together having an experience and that can create a sense of safety for the client to actually open up more. Yeah. Well, it's having that more balanced relationship. And then as you were saying before, having those boundaries around certain areas that can help create that, I guess, healthier relationship rather than one of you feeling depleted. Yeah. Yeah. It's very different, huh? It's very different from like, I think what we've come from. We're like, we go to the doctor or the psychiatrist or whatever, and we tell them our problems and they are like on the pedestal with the ex- they're the experts with the, you know, prescriptions and diagnosis. And, and we just come and take what they give us. And I think practitioner work tends to be a lot more collaborative, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's more of a journey, I think, too. It's not a, like, there's no quick fixes in it. And sometimes there's a few steps back before you then get the next step forward. And, you know, I know from the practitioner side that, you know, I'll often be thinking, oh, I wish that, you know, I could get this client to this point, but then I have to remember that this is their journey and they have come so far on their journey and everybody goes, you know, at different, you know, rates along their journey. Uh, But that's something I know I always have to keep sort of, you know, coming back to and just remembering that it is a process and everybody is very individual. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Removing the attachment or like aiming to remove the attachment outcome. Mm which is sometimes hard to do when you really want oh, yeah. someone to be like <laughs> getting oh, yeah. to that next step. So <laughs> yeah, to tie that in with the tra- trauma work, like when you're working with someone, a lot of us have, you know, have some traumas that we're not aware of. That's not necessarily why we go to see practitioners, especially like a nutritionist. Um, but when you're working with someone who intentionally knows like they have, they know they have some of these patterns and they want to work on them and they like seek a practitioner for the, with the intention of that. I think, um, stepping back from that attachment to outcome is even more important because with trauma, there's like a lot of mystery there. Like there's these patterns that were set up at some point, potentially over a longer period of time. And we we need to understand them. We also need to like accept that they're there. And I think that um, that's one of the things that I learned from the, definitely from like working with trauma is like, you have to just respect someone's pace. Because there's a difference between working with someone who's like, I want to get my macro styled in and get in shape, cut out gluten, go to bed earlier or something right versus someone that's like i want to stop waking up in a panic and hating men or <laughs> because of my you know like so there's a there's a different approach you have to take um and i think one is can you can be a little bit more attached to outcome because their outcomes are more like, definable really definable yeah totally definable yeah so in relation to the nutrition what are the four key factors that we should be considering when we're choosing foods mm, that's a great question uh, I think one would be, are you choosing a food that has, that offers you a high amount of nutrients, like, uh, or bioavailable nutrients, which I guess, yeah, so that's a big one. It's just like, are you choosing a food that actually offers you bioavailable nutrients, um, whether it's a macronutrient or a micronutrient? It doesn't necessarily have to have both, but you need to have, a, you need to choose foods just based on that, that will help you tremendously. Um, are you choosing a whole food versus just like something that's processed that's made into to look like a whole food or something to replace a whole food? Uh, are you choosing a food that you really enjoy? Like that's another one. I think in nutrition, I can think of off the top of my head. I'm actually very, very clear on which foods I thoroughly do not enjoy. Like I, (laughs) and I think I like, I recommend clients eat liver and I've like, you know, developed a way a system of eating liver so we don't actually have to like liver we can take it like supplemental instead of eating it because it's <laughs> it's so many of us and and so um so i'm not expecting myself to eat liver all the time and enjoy it like maybe my great grandmother would have uh so i do think that that's there's there's part of that like if you're only eating because you want to be healthy or because you want to be perfect or you think this is a good food and this is a bad food you're going to have over time, especially, you're going to have a more emotional stress around eating than is necessary. Mm. So that needs to be, even if you're eating clean or you're eating healthy or whatever, you still have to enjoy what you're eating. Yeah. 
Agree. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then lastly, I would say, um, I think you need to eat, you know, you need to choose foods that you will actually eat. Like you, what am I trying? You need to choose a way of eating that is sustainable. And I would go as far as to say that like most diets out there are unsustainable because adherence is so low um, for one reason or another. Maybe it might just be because you're actually on some physiological level starving because you're not eating a macronutrient or a whole food group you've cut out. Um, so that might be what's impacting adherence. Um, but it also might just be that for social reasons, like people who go keto or go, you know, super low carb, they can't really, there's so many things I can't do anymore. Like, and I would say with most restrictive diets, like even if you adopted it originally for health reasons, like you're going to have a harder time eating on a regular basis. It's going to be harder to adhere to. So yeah, so that's, that's the, I would say that's by stay away from restricted diets as much as possible. Yeah. Well, I think they're all really good points. And when you are on a restrictive diet, it kind of sucks the fun out of food anyway. Like it's not enjoyable. So you're not enjoying the food <laughs> that you're choosing. No. Um, and that's where I think more of a, a balanced approach definitely tends to work a lot better. But what are your thoughts on fasting and time-restricted eating? And because that has become a really big thing, you know, recently for for everybody, you know, whether or not, you know, there's quite a few people in the health space that are saying it's fantastic for women or saying it's fantastic if you're overweight or you're a diabetic. Um, yeah. What's your take on fasting and time-restricted eating? Yeah. Um, I think it's generally not a good idea. I think if it serves anyone, it serves men more than it serves women for sure. Um, I haven't like gone down the rabbit hole of fasting for women. I know there's a lot of research that's based on men's bodies that isn't helpful for us. Um, and I think one of the reasons I haven't really gone down the research is because I do think, especially when it comes to fasting, a lot of the research and the like approach, the angle that people come from when they're promoting it is somewhat reductive. Like they're looking at specific mechanisms that you can influence when you fast or you time restrict your food. Um, that will improve someone's lifespan or lower their inflammation or this and that, but they're completely disregarding energy metabolism. And I think energy metabolism and how it plays in with stress and the nervous system is huge. And if we're looking at like a population level, like most people, most women that I work with are stressed. Like they have blood sugar issues. They have a long history of dieting. They're pushing themselves and their bodies too hard. So telling them not to eat it's basically saying stress more, like, here you go, like stress more. Here's a simple solution to not actually increasing your metabolism through doing all the nourishing things you need to do. Just make it overly simple by cutting out food and that will fix your problems. And I think like you're kind of, by, you're using it in the same way we use like medication or supplements sometimes where you're bypassing the actual like real work you need to improve the same, the mechanisms that people fast to improve. Well, you could improve autophagy, you could improve apoptosis, you could improve, you could lower inflammation and and um, a toxin in the gut. You could do those things through eating well. You don't need to fast. People get promoted to fasting because it's so much easier to tell people just not to eat, especially when so many people have so much like shame around eating anyways in this culture that, you know, there's some kind of um, like moral... Like we feel like morally superior, or like accomplished when we don't eat. At least that's kind of like, I used to be part of the you know, keto carnivore fasting world like years ago. And I remember being like, I didn't eat till noon. I was starving thinking about food the whole time, but <laughs> I didn't eat till noon. Like, like, yay me. Like I'm so strong. And I think it's just like, it's not really grounded in um, an understanding of energy metabolism and stress management. Yeah. Well, I definitely think you have to be, very careful with fasting. And I know a lot of the women that I've, you know, spoken to, you know, I explained to them, it is an extra form of stress on the body, which they don't actually think about that. So if you're suffering from, you know, as you said, overstress, autoimmune conditions, um, heavy painful periods and things, it's adding more stress to an already dysregulated system. So it can exacerbate symptoms. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those things, there will be more research done on women. I think it's slowly, slowly coming through. Um, but as you were sort of saying with your points, if you're already in a stressed state, adding more stress onto it isn't going to be helpful. 
No, and I, and I think that's what differentiates like this pro-metabolic bioenergetic approach that I referenced in the beginning versus like a lot of other approaches to health and nutrition is we always look at stress because there's so many trade-offs in health that you could take a food out or add a food in and there's what's the trade-off of doing that. And if the trade-off is more stress, especially long-term because humans are designed to look at health from short-term perspectives and we all don't often have longitudinal data for these things. And so what are you doing to your metabolism? Like, what is the trade-off? And if the trade-off is stress, is it really worth it? Um, and so I always get, I'm always kind of baffled when I see people promoting these things and not even like talking about stress consequences of you know, the stress, the consequences that create new stress. Yeah. I think it's one of those things too. There's a lot of, again, it's coming back to that general information that's out there, but not applying it yeah. to the individual. Yeah, to- yeah, totally. And for people, when they think of stress, I think it's important for people to keep in mind that like, ne- or, sorry, when they think of fasting, uh, to keep in mind that nothing in the metabolism, nothing in the body is produced for free. Like everything that runs our entire system and makes us who we are and allows us to function and perform is uh, produced as function is as possible because of some kind of resource. Usually, it's glucose, nutrients, um, other chemicals that are produced and you know sent from cell to cell. All of those things require inputs in the form of like nutrients, glucose, fats, proteins. And so, when you remove those things, the body has to use up what it already has. It has to use up what it has and reallocate resources to the most important places. So this is why I've seen women who fast start losing their hair past a certain point or their sex hormones drop. It's because they didn't necessarily have all that much reserves in the first place. And then they removed large stores of them throughout the day or for chunks of time. And their body reallocated resources to like the places that needed those resources for survival and decided that their hair, their skin, their periods, reproductive capacities were not that important. And it's like, is that really worth it? Yeah, well, that's it. And and as we were sort of saying before, there are so many more women in this stress state. So, you know, it makes sense to be extra careful and to be looking at the nutrients you are taking into your body if you're trying to improve, you know, the state you're in and drop back into that uh, parasympathetic state and that rest and digest. Yeah. And have you ever uh, worked with a heritage human analysis? Yes. I, and I've done them on myself too. Nice. Yeah. That's one of my favorite labs actually. And, um, it's the only one that like, I can work with any lab with my private clients, but it's the one that I require of private clients. And I've been doing it for a few years now. And what I've I've noticed even with myself is the vast, vast majority of women. Um, and it's the only test that I run on men as well are downregulated. And I've also talked with colleagues who use that test a lot as well. And they have a similar experience. So my assessment just based on you know, data I have available to me is that something like 80% of the population is downregulated. Mm. That means they're in, they're, they're stuck in parasympathetic. Like they, and it's, it's a really important nervous system state to be in, to calm ourselves down, to go to sleep, to rest. But when the body puts you there, locks you in there, that's not a good thing. That's a sign that the body has downregulated and moved into a protective state where everything is low and slow. So blood sugar is low, thyroid is low. Uh, adrenals are moving slowly and your stress tolerance is much lower than if you were, you know, in a faster oxidative state. And so to fast while you're in that state, and if, you know, if we say that the largest percentage of population is downregulated already, and then you're fasting, like that's, where is that going to take you in five, 10 years? You know, like, it's just, um, you out, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not helping you out totally. It's yeah, there's other ways. A hundred percent. Now to wrap up the podcast, I always ask my guests if there's one piece of advice that you could give to listeners that they could go off after listening to this podcast and instigate straight away, what would it be? Yeah, I would say um learn learn about your nervous system. Like learn the ways your nervous system ties in with your metabolism. Um, get really curious about who you are from like a neuropsychobiological perspective. What are your patterns? How do you handle stress? All of that's, you know, like so important. And I wish 
I had learned this earlier in life because it also like destigmatizes, deshames um, a lot of our patterns that we think we lump into like the category of disorders or dysfunction. Um, a lot of that comes from having a dysregulated nervous system that we were never taught to like recognize or work with. So learn that and then apply all of your other health healing work through that lens. Like, mm. and see. Well, I know part of the benefits of me getting into Pilates is that it's helped to regulate my nervous system because I never used to connect to my breath. I didn't know, you know, back in the day, I was like, why am I focusing on my breathing? Why would this be important? Why do I need to think about where my body is in space kind of thing? And just building that practice then built more of a passion to delve into learning more about breath work and, and everything. So I think if people can find it in different ways, whether or not it's connecting to breath work or doing yoga or Pilates, but finding a way into it as well is a, whether or not it's through movement is another good way to try to do that too. Totally. Yeah. 100%. I think there's so many different paths to that. And Pilates is great too, because it's, you're working on your core and there's just like so much happens in our core that affects our brain that affects our entire system so that's a great entry point yeah and it's a good um way to build different movement patterns and to build that connection and spatial awareness as well that I think so many of us when we were saying before we're so disassociated from our bodies because we're so busy doing all these other things that when we have to actually drop in and connect to different muscles that it's kind of almost sometimes an awakening Mm -hmm. sure yeah. Now, where can listeners reach out and connect with you as well? Yeah. Um, so I am on social media. Instagram is the place that I tend to spend most of my time. Um, I, I still, you know, could do better about being on there more often, but that's just my name, Kim Malden. Um, you can find me on there. I tend to engage quite a bit with people. So you can reach out, let me know how the podcast landed for you. Um, you can also find me on my website, kimbermalden.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but don't really like Facebook so much. So, you know, it's not a good place to reach out to me. <laughs> um, and you have a course as well. I do. Yeah, I have a course. Uh, it's called Habitually Healthy. And it's a, uh, you know, pretty comprehensive women's health course. I tend to recommend it to women if they uh, are into working, you know, doing self-paced work on their own. Um, it's, you know, the lessons are all a little bit longer. So you're going to want to dedicate a little bit more time to it. But that's a great option for women who are not really in the space to commit to more one-on-one work um, and, you know, are willing to do something that's self-paced. And then I also work with women one-on-one. I do one-on-one coaching and hair consultation, hair tissue mineral consultations. Amazing. Well, I'll link that all up in the show notes too, so people can head there and uh, check everything out. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been so lovely having you on. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Please hit subscribe to be updated for each time we release a new podcast.